0: Just open them to 2 Samuel 16. We'll start there. We may go back a little bit further. We are going to finish the story of Absalom today. And let me say, um, we have, we, I, I have chosen to, to take a very bird's eye view of this account, um, largely because I, I decided that I, I wanted to, to not lose the sight of the, of the forest for the trees, and so many of the men who I respect, who I've looked at, who have also preached 2 Samuel, they've taken it one chapter at a time, uh, but I have pretty deliberately chosen uh, that we would do this kind of as an overview, so we're going to take the third big chunk this morning, and, and I, would, I would commend to you in your Bible study, um, there are times, uh, just like we did say back in James... Um, this year, where, where we take, we really dig in, and we take a verse and a word at a time, and we look at that word, and we analyze it. Uh, there's also time when you're doing Bible study to just read portions of Scripture in in larger swaths, and, and I believe that the Holy Spirit reveals things to you in both ways, okay? So, so we're kind of taking a larger section of scripture right now it was not so that we could get done in a hurry uh we had it actually planned out to, to to go a little longer but when we when we decided to do it like this we we shortened things up a bit so we're finishing up this story of absalom this morning and uh quite frankly i'm i'm glad that we're finishing up this has been a this has been a tough section of scripture a lot of sin a lot of consequences for sin and uh, hopefully for you, just like for me, there's been a lot that God has revealed to you about those things. So let me pray uh, first, and then we'll, we'll uh, begin to dig into this story. Heavenly Father, you give us so many different uh, parts of Scripture. There's, there's, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's, there's gospel, there's, there's uh, things about the future. There's things about the past, and Father, through all of those things, you reveal things about yourself and things about us. And so, God, we know that you have given us this story of David and Absalom, and that you want us to consider it. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we do that this morning, as we finish up this story. Father, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help my voice, um, that that I would be able to be clear, uh, Father, and, and and that you would just help. Um, Help me to be able to to speak clearly, God. Um, And and Father, I pray that your spirit would speak through the words that I say. Um, God, I want to pray for uh, Sean McGrath, Lord, over in Kuwait, serving over there for these these next few months. Father, uh, I pray for him that you would uh, give him opportunities to, to have good discussions. Father, I pray that you would bring other believers into his life God, I pray that he would use his time well. I pray that he would be encouraged in Christ while he is there. And Father, I pray for Sarah and the children as they are here at home, that you would help them while, while her husband and their dad is away. And God, I, I pray that you would help us as Hope Bible Church to be able to, to continue to come around her and serve her during these days. And Father, I also I just want to pray for... Memorial Day School as they prepare to to get back going around here. God, we've begun to see teachers around already as the summer starts to come to a close, and Father, we thank you for the relationship that you've given us with Memorial Day School. I ask that you would strengthen that relationship, and I pray that Hope Bible Church would be able to be a good testimony to them here on this campus this year. Uh, Father, I pray for that school that, that you might enable the teachers who are Christians here uh, to be salt and light to the children who attend school here. So, Father, help us now as we dig into this story, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for kind of reasons that'll become apparent when I get to the end, I want to just, I want to go over some of the themes quickly that we've talked about as we finish up this account. First of all, number one, as we consider the story of David and Absalom, I want you to remember that it is very important that we remember the context. Chapter 13, the story of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, follows immediately after chapters 11 and 12, which is the story of David and Bathsheba. And as I've pointed out over and over again, David repents, praise God, and Nathan reveals to him through uh, the, the, word, the, the, Lord, the word of the Lord, coming through Nathan the prophet, David, you shall not die. David receives mercy. But Nathan also speaks very clearly about the consequences of David's sin. And he says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So the passage that we're in here with David and Absalom is very much a, a function of the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. The second thing I want you to remember as we go along and as we've already seen is that everyone in this story is a sinner, Maybe that, maybe that seems obvious to you, but just, just to reiterate, beginning in chapter 11, we've seen adultery and murder and rape and incest and more murder and rebellion and deceit and treachery. None of these are little sins. These are big, wicked sins. It's hard to find a hero in this story. So everybody is a sinner, but there are two distinct kinds of sinners in this story, There are repentant sinners specifically david who has repented he is faithful to yahweh and then there are sinners who are rebels against yahweh so everyone in this story is experiencing the consequence of sin but there's a difference david as a child of god is experiencing those consequences as the father's discipline whereas i would say Absalom and Amnon and perhaps even Ahithophel as we see today, they are rebels against God and they are experiencing the judgment of God for their sin. I've, I've thought a lot about the discipline of the father in this passage. We read about God's discipline in Hebrews chapter 12 and in my opinion there's no better illustration in the Bible of the father's discipline of his children than David and Absalom. And I would add to that, David's submission to the father's discipline. And we've seen that as we've walked through this passage over the last couple of weeks. Number four, we'll see this today, Lord willing. Everyone in this story, faithful or rebellious, are learning the principle expressed to us by Paul in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whoever, Whatever one sows, that also he will reap. And, I, and don't ignore the do not be deceived, God is not mocked part, and go too quickly to the sowing and the reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And what we've seen in this passage is person after person who is, in effect, shaking their fist at Yahweh and saying, I will not have your rule over me. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And then number five, God is always faithful to keep his promises. Even prior to chapter 11 and the sin with Bathsheba, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, which seems a long time ago now, God made that promise to David that says, you will always have a son to sit on the throne. I'm going to establish your house as a dynasty. You will always have a son to sit on the throne. That promise looks pretty bleak right now, both in David's case and in his son's case. But there is nothing that David could do that would change that promise. So, to put it bluntly, and and for our own hearts this morning, even David's terrible sin could not undo the promises of God. All right? So, those are some of the things that we've seen so far. I'm going to jump back into the story. We're going to be pretty heavy on finishing out. the narrative this morning as we go along. Like I've said before, the last couple of weeks, we won't read all of this passage. We're going to cover about two and a half chapters today, so it's important that maybe you go home and read the chapter yourself, the chapters, and and think about these things. And if you have any questions, by the way, this is hard stuff. I'm just going to tell you. We're going to dig in. I know I'm doing a lot of introduction here, but this is tough stuff. And if you have questions, please feel free to come to me or Matt or Let's talk about these things, because i, I got to tell you, I've spent the weekend trying to figure out how I wanted to land this plane, and it's been hard to think about how to, how to land this, this section of Scripture. So, so let's, let's turn to the text. Um, we're we're going to return here. We're going to find a kingdom divided. Wicked men with selfish ambition have seized control of the government. Style is winning out over substance, youth over old age, and Yahweh's King David is once again in hiding in the wilderness. And so just as in previous weeks, I've got a pretty simple outline for you just for the purposes of organization. We're going to see the death of a traitor in Ahithophel, the death of a rebel in Absalom, and the grief of a king in David. So that's going to be our, our uh, outline today as we move through. So first of all, number one, the death of a traitor, Ahithophel. Now let me, let me remind you about Ahithophel. I'm glad to be done with this sermon because I'm tired of having to write that name Ahithophel over and over again on my computer, and it's spell checks over and over again, and I never get it right. I've, I've added like twice as much time to the preparation of this sermon just trying to spell Ahithophel over and over again. Um, so let's, let's think about Ahithophel. He gets a lot of ink in this story, and his, his story is going to wrap up just before Absalom's story. Okay, so this is important. Let's just think about him. Number one, Ahithophel was one of David's trusted counselors. In chapter 16, we read about Ahithophel. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So, was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and Absalom. So, there is good reason to believe that Absalom is thrilled to have Ahithophel come over to his side to rebel against David to come over to his side I mentioned to you last week there's also reason to believe that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather and so it's possible that that had something to do with his treachery and speaking of treachery Ahithophel joined that rebellion this was deeply painful for David David is going up the Mount of Olives, he's leaving Jerusalem. In chapter 15, verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, and David said, "Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So, David knows that Ahithophel is an asset to Absalom, and, and David just prays, God, I just pray that you would minimize his influence. And I think that prayer is going to be answered in our passage today i also want to remind you of another person if you just look back to chapter 15 verse 32 i skipped over this person on purpose because he's a he's kind of a star of part three today and this is a person named hushai the archite and i'm setting it up here a little bit but let me read to you verses 32 through 37 from chapter 15. While David, was com- um, yeah, 15. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel." Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Okay, so so Hushai comes to David and he says, I'm going to come with you. As you leave Jerusalem, I'm going to come with you. And David says, nope, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to stay there and, and present yourself to Absalom and I want you to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. I want you to be there to speak when Ahithophel speaks. And so if you turn with me then to the end of chapter 16, we see Ahithophel takes center stage. This is his chance. And so beginning in verse 20, and I'm just going to tell you about this part, this is the first advising, a first counsel that Ahithophel gives to David, I mean to Absalom. Ahithophel says, "I think you should go in to the king's concubines. So when David fled Jerusalem, he left 10 concubines behind, presumably to watch over the house. So Ahithophel counsels Absalom to go into the king's concubines. According to verse 22, they set up a tent on the roof of the palace. This is public rebellion. Think of like the old story of Cortez burning the ships. So that nobody would go back to the old world. This is Ahithophel saying, Absalom, it is time for you to go all in. You go on the roof, you take the king's concubines, you do it in a tent. This almost certainly appeals to Absalom's flesh. This is immoral, this is exhibitionist. It's that act of rebellion. And this is a man in Absalom who is fine to be wicked for everybody to see he's got his hair, he's got his chariots, he's got his entourage. Maybe you've seen things in the White House lately that you've thought, I never thought we would see that in the White House. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. There's nothing new under the sun. And we have to be reminded, this is why I've I've come back to this so much, David's words, um, Nathan's words to David in chapter 12, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Okay, so Ahithophel and Absalom will definitely be accountable for this sin, but they don't know it, but their sin is being used by God. Even our enemies can't avoid being used by God for his purposes. So that's the first counsel that Ahithophel gives. Here's the second. Ahithophel has a plan to kill David, and it's a good plan, all right? 17, 1 through 4, I'm going to read it. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes to hear to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. So, like I said, this is a good plan. He's wise, but Ahithophel makes a fatal mistake. His mistake is not in his planning. His mistake is in his presentation. And I think it's as if he's forgotten who he's talking to. Because if you'll notice Ahithophel's plan, the common word is I. I will choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David. I will come upon him when he is weak. I will strike him down. And I think he neglects to factor in Absalom's vanity. And so Absalom says, this counsel seems good to me, but let's hear what Hushai the archite, has to say. How many choices do we make in a day that change the course of our lives and of other people's lives? How many times do we not even know that we've been delayed five or six minutes and a car accident has taken place or something has taken place and just our delay kept us from being involved in that? How many times have we had an impulse to stop at a grocery store and we run into somebody that we haven't seen in a while and we have some conversation and they give us some piece of information or some people, some piece of news and it changes the course of our life? How many of us haven't wondered what would have happened if we had made a different choice on some terrible day? What if we had said something different? What if I had just turned right rather than turning left? These are all choices that we make. We're accountable for the things we do. There are no random acts. God is sovereign. Somehow, he is working through our acts to bring about his sovereign purposes. Why in the world does Absalom decide to ask for Hushai's advice when Ahithophel's advice is perfectly good advice? History might have been different if, Hushai hadn't decided, if, if Absalom hadn't decided to ask Hushai. By the way, I think the answer is that God is answering David's prayer. Oh, Lord, please frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. God is going to use Hushai to frustrate Absalom's coup attempt. Hushai is there to work against Ahithophel. In verse 7, he says, Ahithophel's counsel is not good. Well, that's getting to the point. I'm just going to come out and say it. That's bad counsel. Verse 8, you know that your father and his mighty men will not go down without a fight. And then verse 11, Hushai appeals to Absalom's vanity. You should gather Israel so that you go into battle in person. And then look at verse 14. Verse 14, I would say, it's the key to this chapter, and it's the turning point of this whole account. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. Why did Absalom reject Ahithophel's counsel? Was it because he was vain and his sin made him stupid? Yes. Was it because David had the foresight to send Hushai to frustrate Ahithophel? Yes. Was it because David prayed that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness? Yes. Was it because God ordained to defeat the council of Ahithophel and to bring harm to Absalom? Yes and yes. What we see here, I would suggest to you, is one of the great mysteries of our faith. Are Ahithophel and David and Absalom and Hushai all responsible for their choices? Yes, they are. Is God sovereign in using the choices of those men to accomplish his purposes? Yes, he is. How can these things be true? How can they both be true? I don't know, but I believe it. I believe that it says in Scripture that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. How can that be true? I don't know, but I believe it because that's what Scripture tells me. How can it be that these these words were written down by human beings but also inspired by God? I don't know, but I believe it because that's what Scripture tells me. Nobody in this story has any clue that Absalom has rejected Ahithophel's good commentary. From David's perspective, things are bleak. From Absalom's perspective, things are going great. Nobody knows that everything has changed because Absalom chose Hushai, and no one knows that God ordained it so that he might bring on harm on Absalom. By the way, do you ever just pray that God would frustrate the plans of evil men. Like I was, as I was reading this, you know, I'm, I'm not in Congress or the Supreme Court or the White House, or I'm not in the places of power, but God is, like he's there. And clearly in this story, he is orchestrating things to bring about his sovereign purposes. And I thought to myself, maybe I should just do more praying. God. Would you frustrate the plans of those evil men? Because it worked for David. Maybe it could work for us as well. All right, verses 15 through 22, we're moving along here. They keep the drama alive. Hushai seeks to get word, so Hushai needs to send word back to David of of Absalom's impending attack. Jonathan and a guy named Ahimaaz, carry a secret message when they're leaving the city uh, verses 19, 18 and 19 say they get hidden in a well and then the attackers leave and then they go and they take the word to David and I summarized a lot of verses there but that's what happens but we need to close out the story of Ahithophel look at verse 23 when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city and he set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel is a wise man. He understands that the tide has turned. Like his plan to kill David, Ahithophel has a clean and concise plan to take care of his own life. He sees the implication of Absalom's choice. He sees the the handwriting on the wall, as it were, and he knows that there's no future for him in David's restored kingdom and so he takes matters into his own hands. I've thought a lot about Ahithophel, and I think you should too. It's worth thinking about Ahithophel. He's a smart man who gives good, practical advice, but his advice is rooted in rebellion against God. If you need help rebelling against God, Ahithophel was your man. And any counsel grounded in rebellion against God will not stand. So I would ask you, what kind of counsel, what kind of help are you looking for? Because a lot of what passes today as good practical counsel is rooted in rebellion against Yahweh. Remember, when, when Absalom and his elders heard the counsel of Ahithophel, they said, that sounds good to us. But there's a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. There's a certain perspective from which that counsel seems wise, and yet, if you want wisdom from above, you need to be on guard against Ahithophel's, because God's interests will not be their concern. I don't have any sympathy for Ahithophel. A couple of guys I read this week said, ah, Ahithophel, maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. Ahithophel reaped what he sowed. He counseled David to go into the king's concubines, that was immoral. I mean, he counseled uh, Absalom. He planned to kill David with high-handed rebellion, and like Judas, a thousand years later, he takes his own life rather than face up to his actions. I don't think Ahithophel was a good guy. I think Ahithophel reaped what he had sown. All right, secondly then, the death of a rebel. So the end of Absalom. We turn to chapter 18. Upon hearing that Absalom is on his way to attack, David musters his men in verse 1. Look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 18. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the, the, the men had actually said, David, I don't think you should go into battle with us. That your life is more valuable than ours, we think you should stay here. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Atai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom and the people heard what the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David gives one order as the as the army goes out to face the rebellion, David gives one order, deal g- gently for my sake with the boy. That's all I ask. And it's important to note, this is not in private, all the people heard. So verse 6, so the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss was great on that day 20,000 men the battle spread over the face of the whole country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword one of the things about battles in scripture and i always notice this if you go and you look at Joshua 6 which is the story of the battle of Jericho and you know we've all seen veggie tales we know what happened in the battle of Jericho and i think we all think you know Joshua 6 must be a whole chapter devoted to the battle it's not. It's two verses. The whole battle of Jericho is two verses. The rest of it is all about Achan's sin. It's interesting. The writers of Scripture tell us certain things that they want us to see, and then they tell us other things. Very they, they, The things that we might be interested, they're, they're kind of like short on information. And so in this case, the, battle, the, 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 the author doesn't tell us much about the battle at all. He gives the forest more credit for the victory than he gives David's men, The forest devoured more people than the sword. Basically, what I learned from that is, when it comes to the enemies of God, God doesn't need us. He could use the forest to win his battles, if he needs to. And secondly, Absalom dies in what seems like a freak accident. Verse 9, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head got caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Remember chapter 14, chapter 17, verse 14, the Lord intended to bring harm to Absalom. I love how the text says Absalom happened to meet some of the servants. Of David. And remember, if he had listened to Ahithophel's counsel, this would not have happened. He was just hanging around in the tree. <laughs> Mules, by the way, were the transportation of royalty. I always point out on Palm Sunday, because a lot of people think that the fact that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem means that he was like exhibiting humility. He wasn't. It's not true. He was, uh, when, 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 uh, Absalom wasn't riding his chariot he was riding his mule because that's what kings rode they rode mules they rode donkeys and somehow he gets his head stuck in a branch and I know the text doesn't say hair but I gotta believe as much of a big deal as the author has made of Absalom's huge hair there's got to be something connected to the hair here We've already been told how spectacular it was. The Bible doesn't say at all about how God used this tree to capture Absalom. The best I can think is that perhaps he was turned around looking behind him and he got caught in the branch and the mule just kept going. It's interesting, and I want to mark this for later. The Bible says he was suspended between heaven and earth. Verse 10 says, A certain man saw it and told Joab, This certain man, unnamed and thus unknown to history, was loyal and he had integrity because he knows that his king said one thing, deal gently with the boy. All I ask is that you deal gently with the boy. And Joab says, why didn't you strike him? And this certain young man says, because I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. And we can sit here right now and we can debate the wisdom of David's command. Was it driven by feelings? Was it reasonable? But it doesn't matter. When the king, who is God, God's anointed, says, deal gently with my son, you deal gently with his son. And this certain young man was not about to disobey his king. Joab, on the other hand, is perfectly pragmatic His response is telling. He actually says in the text, he says, I will not waste time on this with you. It has that feeling of like, yeah, you got a good point, but I'm ignoring that. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't want to hear any more about it. So Joab finishes the job, verses 14 and 15. He took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him And killed him. Absalom's fire may have burned bright for a season, but it's quickly extinguished. Joab is the opposite of gentle. He uses three javelins to subdue him, apparently, removes him from the tree, and then lets his ten young armor bearers finish the job. Everything about Absalom's end is undignified. Verse 17, they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones, and all Israel fled away to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance, and he called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's monument to this day. So Absalom had built a monument to himself, a grave, but nobody told the, sto- the, the soldiers of David. They throw him in a pit, and they cover stones of him. By the way, this is how you buried an accursed man. In uh, Joshua 7, 6, Achan is buried in a pit, and he has thrones, uh, stones piled over him. Absalom is a rebel against Yahweh. He may have been a media darling. He may have been a favorite with the girls. He may have known how to work a crowd, but in the end, he was a person who tried to kill David, God's chosen king, and he reaped what he sowed. Interestingly, Psalm 94, 12 through 13 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. David is a man who was disciplined by the Lord. Absalom was a man for whom a pit was dug. Finally, then, we see the grief of a king. Beginning in verse 17, this is a sad section. Someone needs to tell David. In verse 24, it says that David was sitting between the gates, anxiously awaiting news about his son. And here's just an observation that struck me. I I may be making too much of this. Absalom is said to be hanging between heaven and earth. David is said to be sitting between the gates. Both men are waiting. Absalom hangs in the air. David sits in the gate. I see something of our life here as we wait for redemption. We lie to ourselves a lot. We lie to ourselves a lot, right? Like we think we're in control. We think we've got this. And then sometimes those moments come when it becomes so completely clear that we are not in control, and so we are forced to wait. And we wait at a bedside, or we wait at the phone, or we wait in a waiting room. And we're just waiting. Along the same lines, what would be good news here for David? What what would be a good word that the armies of David have been defeated and Absalom lives? So this guy Ahimaaz wants to be the first to tell David. He wants to come that David's army is jubilant because they have put down the rebellion. And Joab suspects that this will not be welcome news. He says in verse 20, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall not carry news because the king's son is dead. So Joab intends to send a Cushite, but Ahimaaz stays with it and he runs ahead of the Cushite and he reaches David before the Cushite. David is still waiting in the gate. He lifts up his eyes, and he sees Ahimaaz approaching. David says, Ahimaaz is a good man bearing good news. But Joab was right about Ahimaaz not being the guy to bear good news, bad news. He stammers and stutters. Verse 29, and the king said, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king says, Turn aside and stand here. I've heard it said, bad news doesn't get better with age. When you have something hard to say to somebody, say it. David says to Ahimas, you go stand over there. And the Cushite arrives, and he tells David that Absalom is dead. And verse 33 is just heartbreaking. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son? I don't know what David wanted to hear. It's hard for me to put David, put myself in David's place. How would any father respond under these circumstances? Chapter 19, verse 1, it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. When the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son, And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried out in a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. The situation has become awkward with the soldiers. They're supporters of David. They're excited that the rebellion has been put down, but they're forced to return to Jerusalem as though they are defeated. And so Joab ever the pragmatist goes to David and rebukes him and says, you have put to shame those who fought to save your life. You love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. It seems as though you would be happy if Absalom were still alive and your supporters were dead. And so verse eight, then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So like I said, I have spent the whole weekend trying to figure out how to end this sad portion of scripture. How do I conclude this? And if you prefer happy endings, this is not the story for you. And this is why I kind of, I summarized those big themes at the beginning of our time together this morning, because I want to really resist the urge to just put a bow on this with some concluding points. I think we have to kind of leave it like David sitting between the gates. So here's where I've landed. I think this story, going all the way back to chapter 11 and Bathsheba's, Bathsheba pictures what it's like to live as a faithful believer as we await the return of Jesus. This story is very messy because life is very messy messy, and it is filled with questions, and it is filled with difficult lessons to learn. David, a man after God's own heart, sins big. After he sins, he is forgiven, but the consequences of his sin have serious effects on his family, and David's sin, as bad as it is, does not negate God's promise. It strikes me this morning that Jesus says, if we're going to follow him, we must love him more than father, mother, husband, wife, son, or daughter. And I would like to think that I love Jesus that way. And I will say to you right now that I do. But how would I respond if one of my children was killed in battle as a rebel against God? Would I be able to rejoice in Yahweh's victory? And so I think we must conclude by acknowledging that we desperately need King Jesus. In light of this passage, we should definitely report, repent, of ever again letting ourselves believe we've got this. Because number one, sin is really bad. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. When you are tempted to play around with sin, to coddle some personal favorite sin, remember, God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. But also, if you are a believer, praise God. Nothing you can do, not even sin, can separate you from God's promises. That it, there's, there can't be a mistake on the part of the author that we go from, from 2 Samuel 7, which is God's great promise, I'm going to build you a dynasty, and I am going to, 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 to raise up a son to sit on your throne, that we go right from there to David's great sin with Bathsheba. Because God doesn't say, oh, never mind, I picked the wrong guy. And God doesn't say that to us either. And then also, if you've never trusted in Christ... As long as you live and breathe, there's still time for you to trust him and put your trust in him. Up until the very end, Absalom could have repented. Ahithophel could have repented. Amnon could have repented, but they didn't. David repented. And what does God say? You will not die. There is mercy in repentance. Again, God's promise to David, I will build you a dynasty and you will never lack a son to sit on the throne. In the end, David doesn't look very good. Amnon and Absalom, his two oldest sons are dead. Solomon carries on the line, but he also carries on the family sin and his heart is turned from Yahweh by by marrying too many women. What do we do? We look to Jesus. David endured all this suffering because of his own sin. David couldn't die for the sins of his people. He couldn't even die for his own sin. He even says, would that I could have died instead of Absalom. God didn't even permit him to die for his own sin. Jesus endured suffering, and Jesus died, not because of his sin, but because of ours. And I'll just close with this. If you've ever been tempted to say, wow, David really got away with that sin of Bathsheba and Uriah. I hope you'll never think that again after these last three weeks. If you've ever been tempted to say, well, David was a believer, David was a faithful man, and he sinned big, and he was forgiven, I hope you'll never think that again either. Because I know, I'll tell you this, I know my heart, and I know how sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, I'm not going to die. David didn't die. David was shown mercy but the consequences for his sin, the ripples. The very first week I said repentance is like throwing a pebble in the pond and you may get the pebble back, but you can't stop the ripples. Sin has ripples and ripples and ripples and it affects us, affects our relationship with God, it affects, it ref, it, it ref affects those whom we love. Praise God. Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. And so we will land there, and we will take, as we always do, of the Lord's table, and we will cry out to him for mercy, and we can cry out to him to redeem the years that the locusts have eaten, as the prophet Nahum says. Jesus gives us this bread the, by his body in the form of the bread, his blood in the form of the cup. And we do this together every week. If you know Jesus, if you have repented of your sins, then you are invited to partake with us this morning. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins, we would just ask that you refrain from taking, let us talk to you, let us explain some more, and uh, perhaps you can take with us in full understanding some other time soon. So uh, the guys are going to hand out the bread and the cup, hang on to that, I'll come up here and read a passage of scripture and then we'll partake together.